I love a good podcast, as you know, and I'm always happy to share resources for parents who are looking for creative, smart content that both entertains and offers enrichment for curious kids everywhere. So I'm happy to let you know about this awesome new show from the creators of the hit kids podcast, Who Smarted, and Netflix's Brainchild, The Adventurous World of Mysteries About True Histories, affectionately known as Math. Every episode follows Max and Molly, who have just been recruited into a secret order of problem solvers on an adventure through time, packed with puzzles, hidden equations, history, and laughs. The series explores themes that kids like ours love, like the stories behind math, critical thinking, code breaking, pattern solving, and more. And episodes transport kids into iconic periods in history like Pythagoras's Ancient Greece, the era of the Aztecs, Sir Isaac Newton's England. So cool. New episodes drop every Thursday and are about 15 minutes long, a perfect length for those car rides, for meal times, for break times, and bedtimes. What I love about this show is that it's kind of like listening to a book on tape. The story is captivating and includes lots of problems listeners can try to solve. The voice actors are fantastic, and the math concepts are seamlessly weaved into the narrative. It's exactly the kind of show Ash would have loved a few years ago, especially during our homeschool years, because finding that perfect blend of entertaining and educating, it isn't always easy. So tune into Mysteries About True Histories with your kids. You can follow and listen on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your pods. So it it is about bridges, but it's more about these kids and their parents and trying to find a way to fit into into the world. And the fact that they were graduating, they were all about to graduate, they had a story to tell, they'd hit a certain milestone, and there was certain relief in the voices of their parents, and a certain excitement in their voices that they had found what they're good at. They, of course, understood what they weren't good at. Everyone had told them what they weren't good at. But most of them had something that they were good at and were excited to go off into the world and test it. Welcome to Tilt Parenting, a podcast featuring interviews and conversations aimed at inspiring, informing, and supporting parents raising differently wired kids. I'm your host, Debbie Reber, and today I'm excited to share with you a conversation I recently had with filmmaker Tom Ropaluski. Tom is the director of the highly acclaimed documentary 2E Twice Exceptional, which came out in 2015, and he's currently wrapping up post-production on a follow-up film called 2E2, Teaching the Twice Exceptional. Tom's films center around Bridges Academy, a school for twice exceptional kids in Studio City, California, that's leading the way when it comes to meeting the educational needs of these unique learners. In our conversation, Tom shares his story and personal why behind making these films, talks about the educational model at Bridges, describes how his films are helping to bring awareness of 2E kids to the mainstream, and gives us a sneak peek of his new film, which, along with the viewer guide, will be coming out in April of this year. Here's my conversation with Tom. I hope you enjoy it. Hey, Tom, welcome to the podcast. Hi, Debbie. How are you? I am very good. And I'm looking forward to this conversation. I've been wanting to have you on the show for a while. So thanks so much for being here. You're welcome. So before we get into the meat of our conversation and learning more about your films that you've made, could you tell us just a little bit about who you are, your your backstory, and then your personal why in terms of how you got brought into this particular work with 2E. Sure. Well, my wife and I were both, uh, for many years, Hollywood screenwriters. She still is. Uh, She wrote uh, Mrs. Doubtfire and Limitless and the new version of Hairspray 
and Overboard, which just had its uh, anniversary and it's been celebrated. But she was we were both comedy screenwriters and and I've written and directed for television and for movies. Um, and as movies became more interested in the past decade in superheroes, I became less interested in that. So was looking around for different ways to be creative and making films because I've always loved films. I was one of those kids you know, as a teenager who was making films in eight millimeter with my friends in the backyard. And um, so I always wanted to be a filmmaker of some sort. But lately, over the past 15 years or so, I've um, best been less enamored with with the Hollywood industry. And my wife and I have made enough ill-gotten gains that I could sort of make other kinds of film. The first one I did was was um, about my wife's family, which is kind of a strange thing to do. Why would you make something about your your father-in-law as the star? But um, he his parents were two um, American artists. One was Dorothea Lange, who was a, a famous American photographer of the Depression, and her father was a his father was a um, southwestern painter named Maynard Dixon. And during the Depression, when they couldn't afford a a studio for him and a studio for her and a home. They got rid of the home and put the kids in foster care off and on for seven years. And the movie was about not about the, these great artists, which they, you could argue that they're particularly Dorothea Lange, who who's one of whose photographed migrant mother is probably the most iconic in American history. But what I wanted to make a film about was the family dynamic and and the choice between family and art. And um, and that film uh, went on to win a bunch of awards in film festivals and played on PBS. And uh, it was a completely a personal project. And I really enjoyed it. And it was very satisfying to do. And uh, I had showed it at my son's school, uh, Bridges. And that kind of led to people saying, hmm, if you're looking for a subject, uh, mm-hmm. there's this class graduating that's filled with interesting kids. You might want to talk with them. So that got me into uh, making a two documentary. But really what got me into making this documentary was having been a parent pulling my hair out. Um, I think with two kids, it's very hard to see who they're going to be. They're not on a trajectory that you can predict. And so every step of the way, particularly when they're younger, you just don't know what they're going to be like, Not never mind next year, but next week. And um, my wife and I, uh, you know, when our son was, was 18 months old, he was reading, you know, not he wasn't reading Harry Potter, but he was reading words. And our, we thought it was great. You know, it was like a parlor trick. Our friends would come over and our kid would read these things. And we, we brought him to our pediatrician who said, just you wait. This is not necessarily going to be a fun road for any of you. And so, indeed, it was not. When, when our son was in a, a private school in Los Angeles, which talked the talk, you know, they made us read the Mel Levine book, uh, One Mind at a Time. And, but they really didn't want our child's mind. They were they could swing a little better better than the public school system. But when you know, when kid is reading at 18 months and he would be in class in in kindergarten and he'd walk to the library and said, I'll come back when you're teaching something I don't know, Uh, which for him was a win win. But for the teachers and administration, it didn't it didn't quite work. So uh, there was a certain point where, you know, they'd be calling us in for these meetings and like you say in your book, they make you feel you're doing something wrong and they make you think you're not disciplining your son, whatever it is. It's a very archaic thought process of he's not doing what we want, so it must be discipline. And maybe if you just discipline him enough, he'll listen to something boring. 
And so we would go in these meetings and the teachers would, he'd say, dad, they're learning word wall. They're learning a, an, and, and, and the teachers would say, well, he should review it. And my son would say, dad, you review a, an, and, and, how does, how does someone do that? And, and, and they just wouldn't give him more challenging uh, material. On the other hand, there were other things that, he, that were challenges to him. If there were three things up on the board and the teacher said, okay, do A, B, and C, and you've got an hour, he would pick the one that he liked and, and hyper-focus. He was one of these, he, he, was, he has ADHD, ADHD, but it's the hyper-focus kind, where um, he wasn't you know, hopping out of his chair all the time, but if he found something he liked, he didn't understand why he couldn't spend all day doing that. And um, at a certain point in first grade, uh, that school said, you know, he's the brightest kid in, in the class, but it would be so nice if he wasn't here. You know, that the, the, the euphemism that they always use is maybe there's a better fit somewhere else, um, which I know that you're familiar with because yeah. I've read it in the book. <laughs> and what we decided to do instead of because uh, it was, of course, it breaks your heart because you want your kid to fit in. You want your kid to be happy. And he was actually fairly happy guy. I mean, as long as he was allowed to do what he wanted to do, uh, you know, he could he could swing with them. Some teachers loved him and some teachers were infuriated by him. But instead of finding another school, we moved to Rome for a year. And that really was the eye opening experience. We, we were both uh, working screenwriters, Hollywood screenwriters. We both had assignments and we said, well, we could write it in Hollywood, write these in Hollywood or we could write these looking at the at the uh, Pantheon. And so we moved to Rome for a year and put him in an international, an English-speaking international school. And it was so eye-opening because he had a wonderful second-grade teacher, an Italian uh, teacher, very theatrical, very nurturing, uh, who had kids from all over the world who spoke all different languages, whose mastery of English was at varying degrees. And she had to be able to swing with different minds. And he loved her and he loved the school and he loved Rome. And we would walk down the street and he'd say, Dad, we haven't been in that church. Let's see what's in there. He, the whole th experience was, was, a, uh, was, a, was educational. And he thrived on it. And we realized, okay, it's not us. He loves to learn. He's just sometimes hard to teach, particularly if it's something he knows or something he's not interested in. So when he went back to school, uh, I went back to uh, um, Los Angeles after, after a year in Rome. We, we found a school that Kind of worked for him, but it didn't have a middle school. And then for the middle school, we found Bridges Academy, which completely changed our lives. Yeah, so much synchronicity in our stories there, and including the moving abroad and having that kind of shake everything up in the best possible way. So lots of questions for you. Um, I guess maybe even since you've mentioned Bridges Academy a couple times, could you just tell us briefly about the school. I know that your your son attended that, I think, through graduation, just for par parents who are listening who aren't familiar with Bridges. Bridges Academy is a school in uh, Studio City, California, that exclusively uh, handles twice exceptional kids. Um, they're dedicated to understanding them and learning what works for them in an educational environment. Um, when my son was there, uh, the school went from sixth grade. He went. He, he moved. He went there in seventh grade, but it went from sixth grade to through high school. Now it's down to fourth grade uh, through high school. When he was there, there was about 118 students. Now there's closing in on 200 students, uh, and now he's 20. He's about to be 22. Um, so he. So we're talking over the course of nine or ten years. 
And it's sort of a, a Petri dish of trying different things that will work for, for these kids. One of the things that uh, I think is is just un, un, invariably effective is small class size. And there were, you know, classes would range anywhere from five to, to 12 kids. And there'd be two teachers in the room. Uh, now the, the teachers are, the classrooms, are, class, class sizes are getting a, a, a bit bigger um, because I think they've learned uh, different ways to individualize and differentiate uh, their curriculum for kids. But they were trying things that were great. For example, instead of seven classes a day in the middle school, they had four. Instead of a five-minute break between classes, they had a 12-minute break between classes and a 45-minute lunch break. So they really, because a lot of these kids have trouble transitioning from one class to, to another, and that 12 minutes really kind of you know, let them decompress. They'd go out into the yard. They could play with their friends. They could just transition into the next into the next uh, class. Also, those those class lengths were uh, about sixty five minutes long, as opposed to forty eight or you know fifty minutes. And the, in most cases, um, the kids were there. It was built into the into the daily schedule time for the kids to do their homework with the teacher present. Um, now, my son was a whiz in biology. And he actually tested out of AP biology and went into went in 11th grade into AP genetics. But in other subjects like math, he was having a real struggle. It just wasn't getting through to him. So he would have extra time on tests. Uh, the teacher would be there to, to, to help him with his homework so that I at home didn't have to be frustrated with him being frustrated, trying to figure out the kind of uh, advanced math that I realized I never needed to use anyway. So they were learning to do different things that I think were very effective and continue to do so. That's fantastic. I mean, you know, my son's twice exceptional and it's Bridges has been on my radar as as has been the Lang School and, you know, some other schools. Yeah. There's so few. And, you know, I, I've had a couple of experts on the podcast, including Dr. Michael Postma, who is executive director of Sang. We just had a great conversation about two wee kids and then uh, Dr. Devin McEachern, who specializes in diagnosing these kids. And it's something that's come up in both those conversations is how tricky it can be to get that school fit, because really, that individualized approach is what's most successful, because they're so unique, you know, their their needs are so unique, but it seems like Bridges is really doing things right over there. Well, like uh, the Lane School in Quad Prep in New York, and um, there's a school in um, in Minnesota that started earlier. They all started with a committed parent. Actually, Bridges started in the in the mid '90s as an after school tutorial program for high school kids that were gifted but were failing high school. And um, then some of the parents said, "This needs to be the school." And it was uh, in the early part of the century they it was in a uh, in a two-room dentist office they rented a two-room dentist office with about 15 kids and so you know in 2000 and whatever 2003 i guess they moved to a former catholic girls school in studio city that was owned by a japanese osaka university and it, and they were using part of the space as an for an immersion program for their japanese students so they had plenty of classrooms it, it was an old high school so they had plenty of classroom size for the uh, or, or classes available classrooms available for for bridges to rent some of the space and over the past five years we've bought the building we bought the property and the school is expanding from that but i think a lot of these newer schools 
have uh, for at least over the past few years are now looking to bridges as the thought leader as the as the elder uh, school that's that's you know done, I mean not that people aren't learning all the time uh, how to best educate to his students but recently um, early was it I guess it was in October bridges sponsored a, a symposium in which they honored the seven um, pioneers uh, uh, in the field of TUI education. And we had about 120 people from all over the world, from Japan, from Australia, from Belgium, uh, from all over. Uh, and it was interesting. I showed some clips from the new movie and I asked, had anyone seen the first movie? And I would say of that 120, 115 had seen the movie. So one of the things the movie is doing is is getting people on the same page and looking to bridges uh, for for some answers. And it was one of the reasons that I made it. I really made it for parents like myself who um, just everything was fraught with anxiety. You just didn't know whether your kid was going to graduate high school, whether he was going to have problems transitioning through um, middle school. And so the, the reason the film came about is after making my first documentary, some of the administrators at the school said, well, the class of 2011, which was about to graduate, was a school, was a class that started at the uh, dentist office building, and they've sort of seen big changes at the school, and they're also an interesting bunch of kids. And um, and so I met with them, and they became, their stories became the spine of the first movie. So it, it is about bridges, but it's more about these kids and their parents and trying to find a way to fit into their into the world. And the fact that they were graduating, they were all about to graduate, they had a story to tell, they'd hit a certain milestone, and there was certain relief in the voices of their parents, and a certain excitement in their voices that they had found what they're good at. They, of course, understood what they weren't good at. Everyone had told them what they weren't good at. But most of them had something that they were good at and were excited to go off into the world and test it. We'll be right back after this quick break. This year, I've been working on becoming more attuned to my body, and so I'm starting to really recognize how periodic spikes in anxiety or disruptions to my routines can seriously throw my whole system off. And as I've been traveling a ton this past month, which is both disruptive and somewhat stressful, I'm especially glad that I have the extra support of Symbiotic Plus, a three-in-one supplement from Ritual with clinically studied prebiotics, probiotics, and a postbiotic to support a balanced gut microbiome. Symbiotic Plus provides fuel to the cells that make up the gut lining to support a healthy gut barrier. And it comes in this very cool minty delayed release capsule, which was specifically designed to help survive the harsh conditions of the upper GI tract for delivery to the colon. The bonus is that the capsules don't need to be refrigerated, so I can easily bring them with me in my carry-on. On a personal level, I love that Ritual is committed to sustainability. They're a female-founded B Corp, meaning they are holding themselves accountable long-term to not only think about their company's financial health, but also the health of people and our planet. There's no more shame in your gut game. Symbiotic Plus and Ritual are here to celebrate, not hide your insides. Get 25% off your first month for a limited time at ritual.com tilt. Start Ritual or add Symbiotic Plus to your subscription today. That's ritual.com tilt for 25% off. Hey there, it's Debbie. I love making this show and sharing conversations about how to support our awesome neurodivergent kids. I've seen how even one little insight from an interview can spark a big shift in daily life. 
But I know that raising complex kids can be messy and lonely. And just when we think we figured it out, something comes up that boots us right back to feeling overwhelmed and stuck. That's why I've poured everything into creating a way for parents like us navigating complex parenting journeys to join together and chart a path that feels positive, hopeful, and doable. It's the brand new Differently Wired Club experience. In the club, you'll get personal support from me and other seasoned parent coaches, six live calls every month where you can connect and get your personal questions answered, the opportunity to learn directly from authors and experts like I have on this show, monthly themes for getting specific and tactical, an exclusive private podcast feed, and the best, most generous community of parents. Seriously, these folks show up for themselves and each other, and that right there is really everything. Because it's a daily reminder that we're not alone. Our kids aren't broken, and we have totally got this. The recently rebooted Differently Wired Club is on a brand new platform with its very own iOS and Android app. It is such a great space. However you learn, whatever your style, no matter the ages, genders, and neurodivergent profile of your children, the Differently Wired Club can help you cultivate the positive shifts you're hoping for. Join us today by going to tiltparenting.com slash club. That's tiltparenting.com slash club. I hope to see you on the inside. I'm curious to know what the, from your perspective as the director and creator of the film, you know, what kind of impact you have noticed that it's had. I mean, you said that you've made it for parents. I know that it's done very well on the festival circuit. It's got a lot of attention. It seems to be on a lot of people's radars and, you know, hopefully has just introduced the term twice exceptional into our lexicon because it seems to be a concept that so many people are not familiar with. But from your perspective, what has been the the impact of the film in the world? Well, that was the other thing that I really wanted to do is to get everyone understanding the, the, the definition, which believe me, you know, psychologists had only determined a universal or at least a universally accepted definition of 2E a couple of years ago. I mean, this is people weren't uh, sure what what this was, you know, and um, and so to get everyone at least talking on the same page and part of the same conversation was also one of the goals. And also to make to have parents who were all over this country and all over the world just feeling alone, feeling isolated, feeling like, am I the only one with a kid like this? And I think one of the biggest things that the film that I'm happiest about the film is that it makes people feel that they're not alone, that there's people out there like them and people out there working to figure to figure this out. Yeah. Well, I'm wondering, do you get feedback from parents and viewers? And, uh, you know, just what kind of information are you hearing from people who've been moved or touched by the film? Well, it, it's interesting. So, uh, I was I was showing it at film festivals, but and it was strangely winning film festivals because I thought it was sort of a really inside baseball kind of movie, like only people who had uh, a dog in the hunt who really kind of had a Tui kid or were Tui people or were Tui parents or were Tui themselves would be interested. But uh, you know, I I used the craft that I of of a Hollywood filmmaker. I I wanted to have it not be just quote unquote educational. I wanted it to feel like a journey, like an emotional journey. You're on an emotional journey with these kids. And, you know, it's funny. uh, I was showing it to a film class at one point, and there's a lot of laughs in the film. People, you know, intentional laughs. It's not laughing at the kids. It's these kids were were truly witty and funny and sharp and and, um, self-aware. 
in a filmmaking class, one of the students said, why is this film so funny? Is it something you're doing or is it something or is it just the subject matter? And 95 percent of the humor comes from these kids. They were just very funny, sharp kids. But on the other hand, as a filmmaker, I knew when to cut for the laugh. I knew when to to edit it in such a way that it led you to the right to the emotional feeling that I that I was hoping that you'd have. So it is a, it's a I think one of the reasons it was was winning film festivals is that people didn't quite know what to expect. And they got a movie experience as well as a deeply educational experience. Um, the other thing is it's been playing at a lot of um, educational conferences. And one of the first places it played was the North Carolina Association of Gifted and Talented's uh, yearly symposium a couple of years ago. And that was about 300 educators or so. And at the end of the uh, of the it was three days at the end of the three days, uh, a woman got up to the podium who was the head of the gifted, uh, the gifted program for all the high schools in North Carolina. And she announced she was, she was about to uh, set up a, um, a task force focusing completely on understanding 2E for North Carolina. And she bought 150 copies of the movie to give to every school uh, in her district. So that's the kind of impact that it's having. It's getting people to talking about this stuff. But mainly, I think it's getting people to not feel, feel so alone. Yeah, I mean, for me, that that was my experience. And I mean, that's one of the reasons why I started Tilt in the first place, too, is because I think so many of us raising these differently wired kids, and there are a lot of parents with two wee kids in this community. It is such an isolating experience. And so yeah, I really appreciate that intention behind the film. So well, a couple things. First, I want to hear about your new film, the the 2E2 film, which my understanding is that it's more about teaching twice exceptional kids. So can you tell us a little bit about that film, which I think is coming out this spring? Yes. Well, you know, you you ask about what the feedback I was getting from the film. And I was I was traveling with the film mainly to gather intel to see what various audiences were perceiving, uh, what they had questions about what they wanted to know more about, if anything was unclear. And the general questions I would get from teachers were what actually does happen in the classroom? Because even though there's a little of that in the first movie, uh, it's not it's not so much about that. Like what do teachers, how do these teachers at Bridges actually engage twice exceptional students? And after about a year of, of these screenings, I went back to the headmaster of the school, Carl Sabatino, uh, under who, whose guidance this is all happening. And he's a brilliant guy. And I said, I think there's there might be an, another film that we could make focusing more on the teachers and more about the theme of what all, the other thing that's happening at Bridges Academy is strength based education is to help a, help a student find and nurture his strength or talent uh, help him uh, identify and understand his challenge, but don't define him by his challenge. And I think a lot of the mainstream American school system defines two-week kids by what they can't do. And who wants to be defined by what you can't do? Nobody does. And um, But that's that's the way it's been set up to fu- fund extra school programs for kids that are have challenges. Um, these kids have extraordinary strengths. Uh, and you can't ignore that. And as a matter of fact, if you had to ignore one side or the other, uh, probably better to ignore the uh, 
the the deficit and focus on the on the strength because that's what they're going to do with their lives in most cases you know some of these kids that only you know build legos and then they build something else and then they build robots those kids are probably going to be engineers probably not going to be a french major so you know if you're going to err on one side and you shouldn't err on either side actually you should really focus on the challenges and the strengths but the it's, focusing on the strengths is so important and primary yeah, we had um, Dr. Gail Salt on the show, and that was one of my big takeaways. She's the author of the book, The Power of Different. And mm. she threw out the idea of an 80-20 ratio, spending 80% of your time working in a kid's area of strength, because of exactly what you said, you know, that is where, where their passions are, and that's going to be their career, ultimately. And mm-hmm. then 20% of the time, you know, working on those those areas of weakness or their deficits. One of the things that Bridges is doing for the high school students now is they, they've uh, initiated, I think it's, this is probably the third year of it, maybe the second or third year. It's called the badge program. And actually a lot of, uh, successful corporations do this for their, for their employees too, which is part of the school day and it becomes more the school day as they become, go from, I think it starts in sophomore year and, and go to seniors is they can design their own curriculum for, you know, an hour a day to pursue something that they're really interested in that the school may not have a course in. And, you know, in most cases, it's something that's inter- interdisciplinary. There was a kid who was interested in, in rocketry. And so he talked to people at JPL about rocketry and built his own little rockets. There, there, is, there were kids making video games. There were kids, there was a, guy, a kid who loved making music and was obsessed with, you know, just he would spend hours and hours on a single track. Uh, who one of the teachers helped him make an album. And the point was not to just make the music, but to then see, then see if he could market it, if he could do something with it, if he could, if he could sell a track to, uh, you know, get, get people interested in it, in it commercially. I mean, this is all the, the notion is to have a student pursue something he's really interested in or something that he has a real strength in that may or may not be covered in the regular school day and to use that to, in a sense, leverage some of his challenges and move into areas out of his comfort zone. And yeah. it's been a very successful uh, program so, so far. And the new movie has uh, a section of the movie is, is, is about that. We'll be right back after this quick break. Well, hey there, busy mama. Are you looking for ways to make your life easier, your home less chaotic, and at the same time, add more joy to your life? My name is Deanna Yates, and I'm the host of Wannabe Clutter Free a podcast all about letting go of the stuff we don't need in our lives so that we can focus on what truly matters. Don't worry, I'm not going to tell you to throw it all away or make you feel guilty about keeping something you love, no matter how many other people don't quite understand it. But I will give you practical and more importantly, actionable advice so that you can make progress right away. And you won't just hear it from me. There are amazing guests too. It's like having your bestie in your pocket, telling you it's okay to let go of the things that are not serving you and your family in a totally non-judgmental way. So join me over on the podcast where we can work on progress over perfection for those of us that want to be clutter-free. If you like this show, there's a decent chance you'll also enjoy The Shameless Mom Academy. Hi, I'm Sarah Dean, the founder and host of The Shameless Mom Academy. The Shameless Mom Academy is a podcast for moms that centers moms more than it centers your kids. I'm not going to teach you how to make baby food or how to make your three-year-old or 13-year-old stop having tantrums. Instead, I'm going to bring you back to yourself. For the last 20 years, I've been helping moms through growth and transformation. 
Inside the Shameless Mom Academy, I help you identify who you are and who you are becoming. Look, motherhood is hard. It brought me to my knees many times and sometimes still does. Returning to who I am and who I am becoming allows me to decide how to show up in all those sticky motherhood moments, but also in all my other relationships and in all the ways I show up in my various communities. So come check out the Shameless Mom Academy wherever you listen to podcasts. I'm willing to bet you'll leave feeling a little inspired and maybe even completely fired up. And you'll probably laugh a few times because I promise we never take ourselves too seriously over here. With 700 episodes to choose from, you're likely going to find something that sparks and speaks to you inside the Shameless Mom Academy. Uh, listening to you say that I'm, I homeschool my child and that's kind of how I do everything, you know, but it's, it's really cool to hear how it can be done in the school because yeah, when you're working in their area of interest, so much learning about, I mean, you can really weave any topic, any subject into their area of interest if you're creative. And of course, they have to justify it. It can't be, I want to read comic books all day. You're right. like, I, I, I want to, I want to, you know, create the the biggest Pokemon Pokedex that exists. I mean, you have to be able to justify what you want to do. And you have either one or two um, teacher mentors, and you might have a mentor outside of the school. If you're writing a novel, you may want to try to get, get someone involved. If you want to write a television pilot, you might want to get, um, you know, in the schools, reaching out to to mentors in different areas that kids may want to, po- you know, pick pick the brains of. And the other thing is, that it's doing, as we know, what these kids anyway. It's erasing the difference between school time and after school time because if it's something that you're interested in, you're probably doing it after school for fun anyway. So a lot of the projects that they're doing are some of them are quite complex. They bleed from the school day into the after-school day, and at the end of which, they'll end up with an artifact or something that not only could will look good on their college resumes, but could be helpful in applying for a job. Yeah, absolutely. Well, you know, and I'm also just so excited about the potential for this sequel film, because exactly what you said, I mean, I think in general, teachers, you know, in the, the traditional educational model are they want to support these kids, but they just don't have the information or the tools or just the understanding, you know, to even recognize necessarily a two week kid, but then how to support them. So it's really exciting to see people like you doing this work that's going to help the many, many, many kids who can, you know, for whatever reason can't afford it, or they don't have access to geographically or whatever to schools that would cater to their specific differences. There's an old Charles Schultz Peanuts cartoon, and it's uh, Charlie Brown and Linus talking, and Linus says, my teacher says teaching is like bowling. The best you can hope for is you roll the ball down the middle and you hit as many pins as you can. And Charlie Brown looks at him and says, she must be a terrible bowler. <laughs> because that is, that is the mainstream school system, but it's not... It's often not the not the fault of the teachers. The, I, I, every teacher I meet, they want to do the best for all their kids. Yeah, and, and they don't want to just hit most of them and, and ignore and ignore the rest. And one of the things that's happening at Bridges is that the things that we're learning through strength based education not only apply to two week kids; they apply to every student. Every single kid could benefit from this. Mm-hmm. Who doesn't want to be taught with a focus on your strengths? Who doesn't want to be supported for your challenge, but not defined by your challenge? Absolutely. I mean, 
I feel that way about so much of, of what we cover here. And until, you know, I had Dr. Ross Green on the podcast recently, who wrote many books, you know, including The Explosive Child, but his recent book, Raising Human Beings, it's like, this is really good for all kids. And I think that's so true for everything that, that we're doing with our kids. It would benefit everybody. Absolutely. So we're going to be playing an excerpt um, from the upcoming film. And I'd love if you could just um, tell us a little bit about it. We'll talk, we'll be playing the how brains work expert that you shared with me. Can you talk a little bit about that? I I knew the general theme of this movie would be strength based education. And kind of on the same wavelength of you, I approached it from everyone is wired differently. Everyone, every, every single person is, is, you know, there's some people that can play in the mainstream easier than some of the others, but everyone is, is wired slightly differently. So the first question I asked students as I interviewed them was, how does your brain work? And I got some very interesting answers. How does your brain work? Well, I think of my brain as a living organism in my head. I know some animals have it in their stomachs or legs. That's pretty freaky for us, but I like to think of it metaphorically and psychologically as this sort of thought train and uh, an oil drill, but it's sort of drilling out facts and information. (laughs) It's like a whole world. My brain runs at a gazillion miles an hour, thinking of every possible way that something can work and every possible way that something can go horribly wrong. I've always kind of been curious as to why the brain does what it does, why I get stressed a lot, why does this happen? Does this happen a lot to normal people? Does this happen to people with Asperger's or who are on the autism spectrum? A lot of people always tell me that I'm really, really smart. I mean, like, I thought that myself for a while, but I was wondering maybe I was so stupid that I thought I was smart, but apparently I'm not. I love that. And I'm, yeah, I'm really excited about the new film. And do you have information about when it's coming out? Do you have a release date yet? I don't. The thing is, we're we're a little behind. My composer... Uh, had had uh, a family emergency, and so I, he he's doing the the score, and uh, so we're a little we're several weeks behind. But I think we'll have it. You know, everything will be completed by probably sometime in March. And if you're interested, you can check out the website twoemovie.com, uh, where you can where the the initially the first film is available, and this and the second film there'll be information about when that's going to be be available. Uh, you can also there you can sign up for my mailing list, which will let you know uh, whenever anything is available. And also you'll get little clips, you know, little sneak peeks from the from the new uh, movie and from other things that I that I'm shooting over the course of of any given year. Well, yeah, I you know, the website's fantastic. And I was watching a bunch of clips in preparation for this conversation. And I loved the student updates. And like, just as a, again, as a parent of a two week kid. And as you said, in the beginning of this conversation, it's really hard to know what this is going to look like down the road, because it is such a fluid situation. Yeah. Well, one of the students in the first film, we had such anxiety, very bright kid, such anxiety. He, he couldn't sleep at night. His mother, when he was, you know, three, four, five, six, seven, would drive him around in the car at night and he'd put his feet up on the dashboard and feel the base of the radio. 
and that calmed him down. And as he got older, he got interested in music. He picked up the bass, was a prodigy, terrific bass player. And um, now his last summer, his band opened for John Fogarty at the Hollywood Bowl. So, I mean, these kids sometimes they drive in the they move in the direction that they're going. And uh, he he's certainly a, a success story. There was another girl named Sydney who would do nothing when she was in the early day, years of middle school, but draw. She just loved to draw. She didn't like to write. She didn't like to do anything. So for a while in the middle school, the, like if she in chemistry or biology, they would let her do um, comic strips to illustrate what she knew. Now, who cares if you write an essay or you, or you do comic strips as long as you're, you've shown that you're proficient in the, in the material? Um, she graduated from high school. She went to CalArts. She immediately after that got a job uh, on the Muppets television show from a couple of years ago that then that, that got canceled. But she's pursuing art uh, commercially now. Uh, I'm not exactly I haven't been in touch with her for a few months, so I'm not sure exactly what she's doing. But it's going to be in the field of art. And she now is a good writer. But they it was because they didn't force writing uh, down her throat at an early age. They let her come at it from her own strength. Uh, and, and then kind of eased her into, into writing when she needed to write. Yeah, I loved watching that video about her story in particular. Um, that's really exciting and, and cool, again, and, and, and inspiring for me, certainly. And um, I'm sure it's inspiring for our listeners to hear, too. And before um, we go, you and I, before the conversation, we're talking about your son, who is in, going to university across the country. So how, how's that all working out? Well, here's the interesting thing. He was a kid who always loved biology, always loved animals, memorized every animal, could tell you one of those. I don't know if he has a photographic memory, but darn close. And he just loved life sciences. And that was his strength. Like I said, he tested out of um, honors biology and he took uh, um, genetics instead in 11th grade. Um, He was convinced he was going to go to he, he, he wanted to pursue the life sciences. But on around 11th grade, and I find that this is often, this sometimes happens with twice exceptional students, is he's a big thinker and he's a deep thinker and a far-reaching thinker. But he was also, in some ways, more mature, you know, intellectually more mature, physically and emotionally less mature than most kids his age. Not necessarily than most TUI kids, but than the, the, the norm. And as he hit 11th grade, he really began to, to get and in, go into a deep funk because he saw the SATs were coming and the SATs meant going into college. The SAT, that meant leaving home. He wasn't sure he wanted to leave home. And he just, his grades started to tank in 11th grade. He just was morose. Uh, he usually was excited to go to school, particularly at Bridges. And um, I was just feeling a funk. And he said, Dad, I don't want to take the SATs. I want to take a gap year. I don't, I want, I just want to focus on my academics uh, and, uh, you know, graduate from high school strong and then deal with college and deal with this stuff. And of course, as a parent, you wonder if a, if, if a, if a student steps off that conveyor belt, whether they'll ever get on again. But indeed, it's a conveyor belt and it's going not necessarily going anywhere. So I knew he knew himself well enough that my wife and I trusted him. And so he didn't take the SATs in 11th grade. He didn't take the SATs in 12th grade. He graduated from from Bridges. He then took that next. We at that point decided that we were. Uh, my wife is from the Bay Area, so 
we uh, had spent a lot of time in Los Angeles, and but I'd always loved San Francisco. So we moved to San Francisco after he had graduated from Bridges. And um, he got a job uh, at the Marine Mammal Center in Sausalito, which is, I think, the foremost uh, marine mammal hospital in, in the world or, or close to it. And he got a job as the only intern in the um, in the lab. And he was analyzing the blood of dead sea lions. And they were, they were trying to figure out why they were having aneurysms. And he was working with the CDC. So he said, okay, this is what I, this is, I really want to stay in the life sciences. So that year he, he took his SATs. That was the year that we went and visited colleges, but because he knew he wanted to be in biology, he, you know, we, we were mainly staying on the coasts. We looked at some schools uh, in the Northeast. We looked at uh, the school Eckerd in Florida, which he really had a, he liked, he'd never been to Florida. Um, the campus is like a club med spa. It was terrific. <laughs> and he just, it, you know, I think most of us go to college because they have an emotional feeling when you get there. It's like, this place is for me. I had that. Um, and he said, I want to go to Eckert, which was he, now here was a kid that if you sent him to summer to camp, you'd get a call four hours later. He hates it here. Come get him. I mean, he's traveled around the world with us, but he never really liked to be, uh, to be, he he doesn't like loud noises. He doesn't like kids screaming camp songs. He doesn't like any of that stuff, and it was never successful. So we were a little concerned that, you know, three thousand miles away was a long way. But having had that the gap year, it gave him some time to be sick of us. It gave him some time to be uh, to say, gee, you know, maybe I maybe I can do this. It's sort of like a light switch went off, like. There was a point at which he was concerned about moving away. He was anxious about it. And then he couldn't wait to do it. And that was the thing I was most concerned about when he went away was, is he going to hate the distance? And that's the thing that worked perfectly. So anyway, for the first year, he was a biology major. But because of math, he's, chemistry has always been his, his kryptonite. He just He has a hard time with chemistry. And he was struggling in, in biology to some degree. But he was sticking with it. And last year with the American elections, he became obsessed with it. And he began to come up with uh, algorithms. And, 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 and he came up with a system where he predicted 49 of the 50 Democratic primaries. And about a month before the general election, he called me and said, Dad, Trump is going to win. And here's why. And he, and he predicted what he called the Rust Belt blowout, which is the Minnesota, Wisconsin, these states going for Trump that had normally been blue states. And he was doing middling in biology. And at a certain point, his, uh, his advisor said, are you sure you don't want to be a poli-sci major? And so now he's a poli-sci major. He just decided this was his area of passion right now. And as far as I'm concerned, whatever makes him happy, whatever he's interested in, he's a very interesting kid. And whatever he's going to do, uh, I think is going to be pretty extraordinary. And I can't predict what it's going to be. Well, thank you for sharing that story. It's again, I just love, love hearing all this and, and what it could look like. And, and I also just appreciate your, your attitude. You know, it is really about supporting our kids and finding their own joy, you know, what's going to fulfill them. And, and it's really cool to hear. So thank you. Are you welcome? 
Well, listen, I'm going to let you go. Um, I'm super excited to be bringing this conversation with our listeners and for this next film to come out. So listeners, I will be including all the links that we talked about, including the the link to the TuiMovie.com website so you can see some trailers and get a sneak peek of what's coming. So check out the show notes page. And Tom, good luck with the movie release. And thank you again for just stopping by and sharing with us today. And thank you, Debbie. You've been listening to the Tilt Parenting Podcast. For the show notes for this episode, including links to the website for Tom's films, where you can learn how to see them, view clips, and more, as well as all the other resources we discussed, visit tiltparenting.com slash session 98. And a quick shout out to Hannah Ross, a new supporter of the Tilt Parenting Podcast. Thank you so much for helping out. And if you like what you heard and want to join Hannah in helping me cover the cost of producing this weekly podcast, as well as making transcripts available, please consider supporting my Patreon campaign. Patreon is an online platform that allows people to make a small monthly contribution, as little as $2 a month, to support the work of an artist or a musician, or in my case, a podcaster. It's super easy to sign up. Just visit patreon.com slash tiltparenting. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash Tilt Parenting, or you can find a link on the Tilt Parenting website. Lastly, this is my weekly pitch to head over to iTunes and leave a rating or a review or both if you haven't done so already. There are a lot of parenting podcasts out there and ratings and reviews help keep our podcast highly visible, which in turn makes it easier for me to land those big guests. Thank you so much. And thanks again for listening. For more information on Tilt Parenting, visit www.tiltparenting.com. When it comes to raising kids, there's so much to consider. Things like, what do we feed them? When do we feed them? How do they sleep? What does it look like to raise kind kids? How does their nervous system work? How do I keep myself calm? What are my triggers? There's so much that comes into play. And we are distilling all of that information for you at Voices of Your Village podcast, where we bring experts in the field of early childhood and education and psychology and across the board so that you don't have to comb the internet for information. You get to show up and hang out and have shame-free, judgment-free conversations and insights into what it looks like to raise kind, empathetic, emotionally intelligent humans. I'm Alyssa Blask Campbell. I have a master's degree in early childhood education. I'm a mom of two, and I am walking this journey right alongside you doing this work. Come hang out with me at Voices of Your Village, and we can dive into real conversations with actionable tips.